in up our series today on creation in Genesis 1 through 3, and we've looked how, how God created in the beginning, God created the world out of nothing, and we talked about the six days, we talked about how God created man uh, in God's image, how he created man, male and female, and, uh, and it's interesting, you know, and, and then on the seventh day, he rested, so we've got the whole story out there so far. It's interesting, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, it says, God saw all that he'd made, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. So at this point in human history, it was not just good. It was very good, very good. And, uh, and it's kind of, you know, fun to imagine what that might have been like. You know, have you ever done that? It's like, sheesh, you know. But it's hard for us, isn't it? Because it didn't stay that good very long. All right, things kind of went downhill. And that's kind of what we're going to look at today. And so in Genesis chapter 3, we're going to read the account of what's it's commonly called the fall of man. But to, to get the background of this, we need to go back to chapter 2 for a moment and get the context. Because in chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, it says, The Lord God took man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and care for it, and God the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Okay, so there it is right there. So we have Adam and Eve in the garden of Eden, which was literally a slice of heaven on earth. You know, it doesn't get any better than this. It was perfect as anything could possibly be. You got these two trees. You got the tree of life. You got the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, uh, but God says that if they eat the tree, uh, eat of the tree of, of knowledge of good and evil, they'll surely die. Not possibly die, surely die. You know, I, why in the world did God put the tree there to begin with? You ever wonder about that? You know, we'll talk about that in a second. And so what, a, what do the first couple do? They go right out and eat of that tree, right? It's kind of like, oh man. And uh, we just can't relate to that because we would never do anything like that, right? Well, let's look at the story in chapter 3. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say you must not eat of the fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and, ate, and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings from them, uh, for themselves." This is the moment in history that man fell from God's glory. This is where sin entered the world, and along with it, suffering and death, okay? All the evil, all the horrendous evil, all the untold suffering that the world has ever known, that we see now throughout all history, started from this single act of disobedience, okay? And... Uh, it might be tempting to point our fingers back at this first couple and say, look what you did. But the truth of the matter is, every single one of us have done the very same thing 
in our own lives. Isn't it true? We've eaten the forbidden fruit, and we didn't have to, but we've done it. And each of us have had our eyes opened to the knowledge of good and evil, unfortunately. Paul tells us in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Okay? So there's no finger pointing here. We, we get it. We understand because we live it, and we all come here as broken people. We have skeletons in our closet, don't we? There's stuff going on. So to understand what's going, here, uh, going on here, I think it's important to make some observations about this story. Because what happened here in the garden is what happens in our lives. And the way they fell into temptations is the way we fall into temptations. And we can learn some things from this, okay? Now, the first thing to notice is that there is a tempter, okay? The devil or Satan is real. Should I ask how many of you really believe in the devil? I mean, I, you know, yeah. It's like if you've ever tried to seek God, the devil will show up. Until you seek God, he might be undercover. You might not ever know he exists, but just try to experience God and you will discover the devil's real and he's called the tempter. And he's described here as a serpent or a dragon-like creature. We see this same label used of him in the book of Revelation. Whether Satan was literally embodied in a, a serpent or a you know, dragon's body or whether this is symbolic language, we don't, I don't know for sure. Everybody can have their opinion. It doesn't matter to me. I don't care. Both are bad news, but there is a tempter, and he tempts us as he tempted them in the garden. But the devil begins with getting Eve to question God. In verse 1, he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree of the garden? Now, note the question itself is bait, okay? The devil intentionally misstates what God's instructions are because he wants to engage her in a dialogue, in a debate, and so that's how he works. He purposely misstates God's words. And every temptation that we experience from the devil involves this element of beginning to question God. We begin to doubt God. You know, did God really say this? Did he really mean this? You know, is God really serious about this? Does God even exist? The doubts go on and on, and the devil's right there to get us to question and doubt and wonder, is this the truth, what God really said? You know, does God really care? Will God notice? Does God see? Okay. What questions does the tempter ask you on a regular basis? Because we all have our weaknesses. So how does the devil like to get you to question God? Where do you doubt question, wonder, and, you know, consider doubt that God's really serious. All sin begins with questioning, is this really that wrong? You know, I mean, will I, and will I really die? I mean, are the consequences really that bad? And all the excuses come, and the devil wants us to get us to doubt God. There's a passage in Romans 14 that says, everything that does not come from faith is sin. Think about that. That's, that. We could spend a sermon right on that. Everything that does not come from faith. So the devil wants us to start acting and thinking on some other basis other than just trust in God. Because when we cease to trust God, that's when we start going, you know, off to left field. But look how Eve answers in verses 2 and 3. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit, uh, fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. So Eve immediately corrects the devil 
But many commentators point out she actually adds to God's word here because there's nothing recorded that says not to touch it. Now, I've, I've, I hear commentators say that, but I got to say, if, if God told me not to eat of some fruit or you'll die, I probably wouldn't touch it either. I mean, you know what I'm saying? So I'm not going to get a, make a big deal about that, okay? And, and so we have this, you know, thing going on here. The thing is, Eve fully understood, though, God's directive not to eat of that tree. She understood what she was doing. She wasn't acting out of ignorance. She was disobeying what God actually said. She knew full well what God said, as we know full well when we go off the tracks. The devil immediately comes back and outrightly contradicts what God says. He says, you will not surely die. The serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. In these two verses, we get a glimpse of some of the core components of all giving in to, of all temptation, and it always involves a lie. There's always at least one lie, and in this case, there's two lies that Satan gives us and that gave Eve. And it's the lie we listen to and choose to believe instead of God that gets us in trouble. So Satan says, you will not surely die. This is an outright lie. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, wait a minute. Adam and Eve continued to live. They didn't keel over and die right then. In fact, Adam lived to be 930. That doesn't sound like dying to me. You know, you're going, so what's the deal here? And uh, we need to understand that death is a process. Very seldom does death happen instantaneously. I mean, you might get hit by a bus. Fine. No? I don't know. I'd, I'd, I can think of better, you know, any, let's not get into that discussion. Anyhow, you know, there's ways to instantaneously die, and even that's not that instantaneous. You know, there's a process, and usually it's long, and it's usually painful, and there's a beginning, and there's an end, and the very last thing that happens is the cessation of brain waves and heartbeat, and we have that. And so, you know, what we need to understand is at that moment in time when they partook of the fruit, death began. The process of death became implanted in our world and our lives, and they began to die. And as we do, okay? But we also need to understand that death, there's two kinds of death in the Bible. There's physical death, but there's spiritual death. And this is very clearly, and you see it in the book of Revelation, you see it in other places, the spiritual death has to do with our disconnection from God, our separation from God. We are separated from our source of life. And the spiritual death happens immediately when we sin. There's that separation, and that's what they experienced. Adam and Eve, the first couple, immediately felt, experienced separation from the source of their life, and they experienced the spiritual death. And this especially shows up in their awareness of their nakedness and their covering up and, and actually hiding from God. Because when you're separated from God and there's that alienation, we, we actually become afraid of God. In verse 8, it says, The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he's walking the garden in the cool of day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And that's what happens. They were alienated from God. And when, when sinners lives, sin enters our lives, we were afraid, we hide, we cover up. We just don't want to face the God who is there. And sometimes, instead of hiding, we try to fight God. You know, there's other ways we 
relate to God, and it's not a good way, but it's spiritual death, because we lack the joyful, wonderful experience of God and his love and his grace, and we're just on the wrong side, and it's spiritual death. And, uh, you know, we struggle with that. Realize the whole point of Jesus coming to earth was to bring us back into that experience of God where we're reconnected. That's why he came to die on the cross and to rise from the dead. In Ephesians, it says, because of his great love for us, who is rich in mercy, uh, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. See, outside of Christ, we are dead and dying. And, uh, and Satan is telling Eve here, don't worry, you won't die. It'll be fine. In fact, you'll be better off. Okay? I mean, that's how Satan operates, right? You know? And, uh, and that's the second lie. Satan tells Eve that she'll become like God. Okay? And this is where we get a glimpse into the very heart of all temptation, where Satan tries to take a, a good desire to know God, to experience God, and he, he twists those desires to something they shouldn't be. So now, instead of just wanting to connect with God, she wants to be God. Be like God. I mean, it's, it's okay to be, want to be like Jesus in the way of humility and kindness and love, but Satan's tempting her and tempts us to be like God in other ways, like really powerful and really strong and get, I'm in control. And that's what Satan always does. He takes a good desire and always twists it. Because, you know, God put these desires in our life, and they're fine, but without God... They become something more than they should be. I mean, let's think of some examples. Money. There's nothing wrong with wanting to make money to live, but it's the love of money that's the root of all evil. We make, it becomes greed, and money becomes a focus, and I become worried about it, and I, get, I hold on to it, and I won't give it. And, you know, it's, that's, that's money. And we could, you know, sex. There's nothing wrong with wanting sex. God created the, the whole thing and the desire for it. But yeah, we all know how that desire for sex becomes lust. And we begin wanting, you know, sex beyond the boundaries that God meant for it to be. And it works with anything. My career, there's nothing wrong with wanting to grow in a career, but then we make it our life. And it goes on and on. And other examples abound. There was nothing wrong with Adam and Eve desiring all the other fruit of the garden. But Satan was mutating that desire to want the one forbidden fruit. I mean, that's how it is. You know, we can have 999 trees we can eat from, and we'll plant ourselves under that one tree of which fruit we can't eat. And that's how we're wired, and that's what Satan wants us to do. Which brings us back to the question, why did God put that tree in the garden to begin with? What is up with that? Now, we could get into a long, deep theological debate on this, okay? But I think the simple answer is straightforward. In order for the first man and woman to truly learn to experience and love God, there needed to be a choice. There needed to be an alternative to do something else. And it's that simple. God was not tempting them. He was simply setting up a situation where the first man and woman could grow up and learn to love as he does with us, because God wants us to grow up and learn to love. But you can't love if there's nothing else to love. There has to be choice. Love is always a choice, and if there's no choice, we can't learn to do that. 
And so God is not tempting. He is trying to get us to grow to be like him in a good way, in love. And so there's one thing to, you know, desire to be God. It's another thing to please God. And God wants us to learn to please him. In James, it says, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire, there's that out-of-control desire, he's dragged away and enticed. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. And that's exactly what we see happening here in the garden. Look back in verse 6, chapter 3. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Now, I don't fully know what Adam's deal is here, you know, <laughs> honestly. You know, maybe he was equally duped. Maybe he was just being a codependent follower. I, you know, we don't know. Maybe he was out golfing or fishing. We don't know what was going on. All we know that when he got back, he ate the fruit too. And he was equally responsible, knowing what he was doing was wrong. And so the two, you know, people, they fell together. And so there's, you know, Eve didn't cause him to fall. And man, you can't blame Eve. And that's another thing we're not getting into today. They, they were, when God showed up, they were blaming everybody. It's this woman. And it's the serpent. The devil made me do it, and God didn't buy any of that. And so the fact of the matter is we all understand these evil desires in our heart. I think the Apostle John was thinking about this story when he wrote in 1 John chapter 2. This is what he says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And then he says this, For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man the lust of the eyes and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. Those three components right there you see in Eve's seeing that the fruit's desirable for food and desirable for the eye and is profitable gaining wisdom. You see the three things right there. And we have personal experience of all of those. What do you love the most other than God? Okay, what do you make time and space for other than God? Take a look at those areas in our life. This morning in our men's study, we we're talking about how when we love God, we walk in the light, not in the darkness. We how do we know when we're walking in the darkness? What are the areas where darkness is still in my life? Those are the areas I put something before God. And Satan is always trying to get me to do that more and more and to be in denial about it at some level. And uh, that's just how we operate. And the, and the fact of the matter is, when God is not present in my life, I have this God-shaped hole in my heart. And I'm going to fill it with something. i got to fill it with something. And I could go on with a list of things I've tried to fill it with. And, and a lot of them are good things. My marriage, it's nothing wrong with, you know, because God created my wife to be, you know, that relationship, to be a reflection of him, to experience him. But no, I cut him out, and I want her to be my God. And she doesn't do a good job. Nor am I God to her. We've played that game, and it don't work. Love and respect. Go to the love and respect class. You get a lot out of it. 
And I got to tell you, it's, it's, it's wonderful when you can have a marriage. By the way, we celebrated our 45th last night. It was great. But I got to tell you, God has to be God. And because God is God, we can love each other in spite of the times we drive each other nuts. And we have those times, but most of the time it's great. But we had to learn that. When we have these, and wherever God is not, I'm going to fill it with something. I'm going to fill it with something. And Satan is right there to tempt me to say, hey, why don't you use this instead of God? And it'll be just good. And, and uh, that's how that works. That's what they did in the garden. In, in Romans chapter 1, verse 25, it says, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever to be praised. And that's what's happened here in the garden. That's what happens. We're always substituting God for something else. And it destroyed us, it's destroying us, and it will completely destroy us in the future. Verse 7, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings from themselves. Their eyes were open, but not in a good way. You know, it's sad that sometimes you can't really know or appreciate, appreciate how good good is until you experience how evil evil is. And, you know... We can't really know how good good is until we've experienced firsthand how evil evil is. And I got to tell you, I've experienced how evil evil is. And it's not by looking at you, it's by looking at me. And that's, that's just how it is. Adam and Eve found out, so have we. And, and, and one of the instinctive things we do is we cover up. We hide, we deny, we put on disguises, we put on masks. We act like nothing's wrong. And church is great. We do that a lot here. When the truth is, we got stuff going on. We like to keep up appearances when we can't. So when God finally caught up with them and confronted them, he outlines for them the, the consequences, the, and he calls it the curses. So there's consequences to this. And we can't go through them in detail, but in verses 17 through 19, God addresses Adam Okay, and he says, Adam, because of this, you're separated from me, and now your life on earth is going to be a hard toil as you seek out to work, make a living, and survive, and it's going to be hard. But I really want you to look at what God said to Eve in verse 16. He said to the woman, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. <laughs> okay, and, but look at this. And with pain, you'll give birth to your children. But listen to this. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Interesting, right? Now, this curse, when it says the woman's desire will be for her husband, this does not necessarily mean desire in the romantic way. And when I first was presented with this understanding, I said, yeah, this, that's right. Because this is what we learned. When sin entered the picture, it totally changed the dynamic between Adam and Eve, the first couple. Because before this, they were a team. They lived in harmony. They complimented each other. They loved each other. You know, it was just a kind of a good thing. But when sin entered, it all became a competition. And it became in a, a challenge. It became war. And, uh, the, and here, here's the deal. In, in, that word desire for your husband, that word desire is used in only in two other places in the Old Testament. The other place, one of the other places in the Song of Solomon, when it's dis 
when it's describing jealous, possessive love. Okay? Desire as jealous, possessive love. And the other place it shows up is when God is confronting Cain in chapter 4 as Cain is thinking about murdering his brother. And this is what God says to Cain. The Lord God said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, listen to this, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. That's the same word. In this context, the word desire means to master, control, enslave, overpower. And of course, in that story, sin won, and Cain went on to murder his brother. But in our passage, God explains her desire will be to control, master, manipulate, overpower her husband, and his desire will be to rule over you. Does that sound familiar? In marriage, have you ever had one of those conversations where each of you is trying to be right? Never. No, we never... We know this because we've all lived it as we play this game of, you know, scorecards, you know, and I do this and you do this and who loves me more and who loves me less and it's just how we, you know, we live. And we're always living in control mode and usually one's aggressively control mode, one's passive aggressively. But we're always running our tails off, and it's not just in our marriages, it's in our life. We're always running our tails off to be in control, to compete with the world at large, and it never satisfies. We just end up dying. I made an interesting typo when I was writing up this message. This this is funny. When I was typing Adam and Eve, I typed Adam and Even. (laughs) And I I was going to fix it. Wait a minute. Because that's really what happened is like we got Adam and get even. And this is not dissing the woman because this competition, this getting even thing is an equal opportunity character defect that we all have. And we play that game in our marriages. I want to get even. I want it even. And we argue about it. And that's just how it worked. Before the fall, man and woman were even. But when sin entered the world, we're always trying to get even with everybody else. And since the fall, there's been this underlying competition, not just between each other, but between us and the God who is there. We've been fighting God ever since. And uh, it's not just the battle between the sexes, it's the battle between mankind and God. And mankind has been trying to play God ever since. And I got to say, We are at a place in history where never before has man had the power to play God as he does now. I mean, it's it's reaching a point where this battle has got to come to a climax, and you know, how long can this last? We have nuclear power, we have nuclear weapons, we have, you know, transportation. We can be at one place on the planet, you know, to another place within hours. You know, we're almost like omnipresent. You know, we're becoming omniscient with. Uh, artificial intelligence, and now they're talking about artificial superintelligence, ASI. We can go on. Medicine, genetic engineering, nanotechnology, communications. You know, God confused the communication to, you know, separate man. That barrier is going away as we speak, as the world is learning to communicate. And we see the battle escalating, and we go, man, it's getting messy out there. But I have good news, and the good news is in our story. And if you look 
over to verses 14 and 15, God finally addresses Satan. He addresses the serpent. And here is where we get our very first prophecy that Jesus is coming. God says to the serpent, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head, and you will only strike his heel. In the garden, Satan struck mankind's heel, but through Eve's offspring, a Savior was born who would strike Satan's head, and his name is Jesus Christ. Yeah, pretty cool, isn't it? And that's exactly what Jesus has done. In Romans, we read this, if, For if by the trespass of one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundance and provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in the life through the one man, Jesus Christ? But it's a gift that you and I have to receive. And that's what we're created for, to experience him so that we can reflect him. Amen? Let's all be standing. Father in heaven, I just thank you that <laughs> you've got this plan that has been going on for a long time. You know our lives, you know everything, and you've just given us an opportunity to become your children. So help us to embrace you today. Help us to realize that we don't have to live on the, rat, on the wheel and be hamsters. We can live as creatures men and women who are created in your image to reflect you. And, but we can only do that as we embrace your son, Jesus. So help us be open to that, to live with you, to walk with you, and uh, experience your fullness. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.